Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're talking about the ark and the temple, meeting God in the past, present, and future. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where this fall we're discussing something that I like to call the ark and the temple, which are two ways to worship God, one being uh, temporary or movable like a tent, and the other being fixed, something that you go to again and again, and then the implications for our worship today. So we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Hebrew Scriptures, and today I want to talk about the ark and division. Uh, The reason why the Old Testament can be hard to read sometimes is because at some point God's kingdom split. It split into two countries with two different kings. Sometimes these countries would go to war with each other. So before we get there, I want to begin with this introduction. 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus, the land of the Hebrews was one unified country under one king. Now, Saul was the first king. He was a mistake. We learned about that in a past episode. But David and Solomon did prosper on on paper anyway. And then this dream would end with David's grandson, Rehoboam. This would be the beginning of of two countries. But even before it started, the prophet Samuel warned it would happen. The prophet Samuel, who had united the nation, and it broke his heart when they asked for a king because this would be his problem with monarchies. This passage is 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning with the 10th verse. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of a king who will reign over you. Now, this is a play on words because the word ways is also mishpat, which means justice, but it also means practice, which is Samuel's playful way of saying that kings don't play by the rules. They just take, and this is what he continues. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his chariots and his horsemen and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers, and he will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And in verse 18, he says, you will cry out. But this power, the power of the king, does not hear like God. Well, it's quite a warning, and it would come to be true. I mean, David... David had his warts, uh, certainly, but Solomon was probably a little worse. In 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, we're told that Solomon loved foreign women, which was a big no-no, not because God didn't like foreign women, but because when you marry outside of the tribe, you adopt their ethics. And sure enough, Solomon would sacrifice to their gods even as he built a house for the God of Abraham, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon also used conscripted labor, and he was harsh in building. So Solomon put a heavy taxation, not only of money, but also on the spirit of the land. So the pot was simmering for Rehoboam, uh, David's grandson. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, he gets bad advice. 
Now, this, this scene actually could be ripped uh, from the pages of, uh, say, CNN. <laughs> it's, first, it's first Kings chapter 12, beginning with the first verse. We're going to read 16. This is Rehoboam attempting to appease uh, restive people in the northern part of his country. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called for him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, and then come to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the older men who had attended his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? They answered him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he disregarded the advice that the older men gave him. He consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and now attended him. He said to them, What advice that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father had put upon us? The young men who had grown up with him said to him, You should say to this people who spoke to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you must lighten it for us. Thus you should say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, come again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. He disregarded the advice that the older men had given him and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people because it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king would not listen to them, the people answered the king, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, O David. So Israel went away to their tents. Well, you can see pretty much the story right there in this very clear passage. But but what you might not know is that trouble was brewing because they had to meet in Shechem, not Jerusalem. Shechem was the traditional tribal location in that pre-monarchy day uh, of, of Israel's existence. So uh, Rehoboam is actually going for appeasement just by going all the way up there. And we can also see why the northern tribes would yell, to your tents, uh, O Israel, uh, saying that Samuel's warning had just come true. They had had enough of this kind of monarchy and the heavy yoke. So now the land of the Hebrews would have two kings, uh, Jeroboam in the north with 10 tribes and Rehoboam in the south with two tribes and a capital city, which would prove to be key to their survival. So they would be smaller, Judah in the south with Israel in the north. Uh, Judah would have Jerusalem, which would help it stay together a little bit longer. And with these two countries would come two cultures, and a good analogy here, and this also help you understand why the Bible sounds different from time to time or has different flavors uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Two cultures. Uh, a good analogy would be the Old West of the USA and then the established East, right? Those years after the American Civil War, you've got the Wild West with the folk heroes, and then you've got all the uh, established in the railroads and the industry of the East. 
Israel in the north would become the land of heroes and of independence, the folk hero, the populist stories. And then Judah would be the old money, the east, with government and establishment power. So this is why you've got two different styles going back and forth and back and forth. In the, in the north, for instance, Elijah, the prophet, is put on earth to vex King Ahab. There is a wonderful story in 1 Kings uh, 21 that I just I love to go to again and again. It's, it, it's a great morality tale, and it's just a ripping good read. Uh, Ahab was the king of Israel, and he's a good king on paper. He's an excellent horseman. He has good, good administrative skills, and they have prosperous trading relationships with their neighbors. But once again, like Solomon earlier in the story, uh, marries a foreign wife. And when you marry a foreign wife, you take on foreign ethics, and her name is Jezebel, and she's she proves to be wicked Jezebel uh, in this story because uh, Ahab covets a vineyard. Uh, there in the Jezreel Valley next to his palace, he sees a vineyard owned by a man named Naboth, and he wants to buy it from him. He loves this piece of land, and Naboth won't sell. He won't sell at any price. It's in his own family. He loves this vineyard. This vineyard is a prize of his. And so Naboth uh, uh, keeps his land, and Ahab pouts. And Ahab pouts to the point where Jezebel says, what's wrong? Why are you pouting? And and when he tells Jezebel that he can't get this vineyard from his neighbor, Jezebel takes over because she knows how monarchies are supposed to run. She is a Phoenician princess and monarchies can take what they want. I mean, Samuel warned it, right? So she holds a banquet and she has Naboth sit in the banquet and sets him up and has him killed. That's it. She kills him takes the land, hands it to her husband, and that should be the end. Take and take, that's what kings do. Except in rides Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 20, Ahab looks up and says to the prophet, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. Because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, I will bring disaster on you. I will consume you, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. In other words, what would in any other country would be typical monarchic behavior becomes a death sentence because kings are supposed to be different, like all people are supposed to be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different with the ethics of the Ten Commandments. Well, that's very much a northern story. You got a northern story with a king getting called out by a prophet. However, uh, Southern stories are different because, well, they're run by the Davidic monarchy who've got things pretty much locked down, and so their stories uh, always uh, speak in favor of those who are in the line of David. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, for instance, this is a Southern story, uh, different than a Northern story. Uh, King Hezekiah, we're told, meets Sennacherib at a place called Lachish. Uh, and, and then there's mention of a ransom, and that's it. What happened in the year 722 B.C., uh, Sennacherib of Assyria made an incursion and wiped the ten tribes of Israel off the map and then dipping down into Judah and attacking many of their cities as well. I, I've read that Assyria was about this kind of business because they needed to replenish a labor pool after a pandemic, when we all know that pandemics change things, and so this was something disruptive in their world. So Sennacherib is down in Judah, and he takes this town of Lachish, and I'm going to read a couple verses, then I'll tell you the story. Uh, this is Second Kings chapter 18, verses 13 and 14. 
in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. And King Hezekiah of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me I will bear. And the king of Assyria demanded of King Hezekiah of Judah three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. That's a pretty big ransom. A talent is 15 years of a laborer's wages. So that's a lot of money out of the treasury. But that's about it. I mean, just mention that Snackrib is at Lachish, and that's all. You can go to Lachish today, and Lachish is a tell. T-E-L, tell is an artificial mound of a city or a civilization that is one built upon another. And it's a rather large mountain, which means that it was a rather large city and Hezekiah, or the way that the, the Davidic monarchy would tell the story is that Hezekiah happens to go over there to meet Sennacherib. Sennacherib tells a different story. Uh, there is a relief uh, from Mesopotamia, now in the British Museum, that is 40 feet long and 17 feet high, as Sennacherib would wallpaper his entire palace with this story. It's all it's all uh, uh, carved and it's all detailed and it shows how Sennacherib took all the gold and all the slaves and all the soldiers that it was a huge battle and a huge loss for Judah and Sennacherib loved it so much that he enshrined it with his wallpaper which is to say that he who makes the gold makes the rules right kings can tell the story that they want you to hear and the Judahite monarchy doesn't want us to know how bad it got. Samuel proved to be right, right? Kings kind of make their rules and they make their priorities. Uh, but as we've learned, um, kings are still kings everywhere. And even, even the kings of Israel wouldn't be perfect, even though they had prophets to sort of keep them in line. Uh, it would all begin with Jeroboam and Jeroboam would have a big idea. Uh, David had a big idea when he built the temple. And that was our first podcast episode. Jeroboam would have a big idea as a new king and a new place. But his big idea would come from a big problem as this new king doesn't have an ark. Hey, remember the ark in the temple. And remember, even when the ark was inside of the temple, they always had a box to remind them of God's presence, that box encrusted with gold and carrying uh, the Ten Commandments. Jeroboam doesn't have an ark. And with the ark is the stability of the nation. So Jeroboam, in keeping with Samuel's warning, comes up with a solution. This solution is found in 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, one of the first acts of the new king and the new country. And I'm going to read verses 25 through 29, 1 Kings 12, 25 through 29. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And then Jeroboam said to himself, now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David if this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. The heart of this people will turn to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Um, I've said something about the golden calf before, but I need to give you a little background uh, again at this point. Uh, people living in ancient times weren't as ignorant as we often ascribe. I know there's a lot about the golden calf uh, again and again in the Old Testament, and it doesn't mean that people were were 
willfully, willfully uh, dumb about God or believe that inanimate objects uh, would would save them. But I do want you to know that they believe the golden calf to be a rain god. In a world with very little water, uh, you you wanted to make sure that you did everything you could so that it would rain over the winter so that your crops would grow and you wouldn't die. And their margins were so thin when it came to rain that that oftentimes they would take advice from their foreign neighbors and hedge their bets. Uh, they would trust the God of Abraham. Uh, they would trust their own God, but they might even th- sort of throw a side prayer or, or a side shekel or two over to the golden calf just to make sure uh, they've got all their bases covered and the rain will come. Uh, what Jeroboam does here is rather smart, is he creates a one-stop shop. Hey, you want to worship Yahweh? I got an altar for you. By the way, if you want to go ahead and toss something to the golden calf, I've got it right here as well. But remember, even though Jeroboam makes a very kingly mistake, this is still a northern story. Remember the difference? Northern stories are populist stories, hero stories, like Old West stories. And just as soon as Jeroboam comes up with this elegant solution, we're told that a man of God speaks, a quote, man of God. And it's just a few verses later. It's actually 1 Kings 13, the next chapter in the first verse. While Jeroboam was standing by the altar to offer incense, a man of God came out of Judah. So this guy was from the south, by the word of the Lord to Bethel, and proclaimed against the altar by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord. A son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by his name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who offer incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. He gave the sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar shall be torn down, and ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Um, There was a way in those days of rendering something unclean forever. In Samaria today, which is in the disputed West Bank uh, part of Israel, there is a mount called Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans, who would be the the progeny, if if you will, of the people left left in Israel after the Assyrians uh, wiped them out and then mingled them with other local people. They would claim to be the lost house of Israel, but the people living in the world of Jesus would say, no, you're mixed, and then this would be the Samaritan bad blood. Uh, but they built a temple, copy-pasted a temple on Mount Gerizim uh, in, this, in this period before the birth of Christ uh, when, uh, when the temple was rebuilt after exile, so this is some 600 years before Jesus' birth. And they rebuilt it, and they continued to worship there until the late Roman period when the Byzantines, we call them Byzantines, they would call themselves Romans, actually built a church on Mount Gerizim and rendered it for the Samaritans unclean. So Samaritans will continue to sacrifice to this very day, making them a very interesting people because they're sort of like a time capsule of biblical people, but they can't worship on their own altar. They can't worship on their own temple space because it's been rendered unclean by Christian church. What the man of God of Judah is warning is that one day bones would be scattered upon uh, Bethel and also at Dan in the north where Jeroboam had committed this apostasy so that it would never be used again. And he promised that it would be Josiah to do it. And 300 years later, Josiah, a king in the Davidic line, would be the one, a great reformer, to come up and end this travesty. And they would scatter the bones on the surface of Bethel, and it would never be used again. I read somewhere, someone said that you know you've made God in your image when God really doesn't like all the same people you do. And I think this is exactly what's happening here. The kings make their own rules. They take what they want. And then they also try to make history or fashion history, even fashion religion, 
into something uh, that they want or something that, that secures their agenda. Uh, and modern application to this ancient problem might be say that we, we also can do this when we turn our own religion into a checked box or something to fit our, our agendas. It's a good warning at any time to remember that our arcs and our temples, however we choose to worship, and by this I mean something that's nimble and pivots or something that we return to again and again, that these must always be means to an end, pointing us to God rather than an end in themselves that can be manipulated and fooling us into thinking we're special. God is God and we are not, and yet God will love us and use us and bring us home anyway, and we'll keep this story going. Thanks. Hi, Derek Belden here, your stewardship chair for St. Luke's. But today I'm here to talk about our theme for the coming year. It's all about get involved. Get involved with your church. Get involved with St. Luke's. Of course, I'd like you to get involved with giving, but there's so many ways to get involved with St. Luke's Episcopal Church. You can get involved in our youth programs. You can get involved in our food ministry. You can get involved in our outreach and inreach programs. You can get involved in a fellowship group. The best way to know how to get involved is to go to our website and go through the page about getting involved. So if you do one thing this year, I'd of course like you to get involved in giving, but just get involved.